Hello, and welcome to Nose to Nose. You know, even you, you I, I don't know what to say. You're, you're laughing, you're smiling, your nose is getting bigger. You're like, you're like Pinocchio. I, think I just love doing this intro in different ways as many times <laughs> as I can, because it's going to be weird every time. But hey, no, you know what? it's not going to be weird every time. It feels weird. But it, it's it's not weird because it's the introduction, but it feels weird. So we're going to talk about a couple of things today because I dragged you to a movie the other day. Nope. First, remember guys? Oh, okay. We have an email now. <laughs> the, <laughs> the email is nose to nose podcast at gmail.com. So if you have anything to say or want to tell us that you hate us, send us an email. Well, so I dragged Gino to the movies. Because he likes to sit home and watch this stuff online. But I want him to see a new film. And I knew that he liked something called Snowpiercer, which we've talked about. I love Snowpiercer. Yeah. So where'd you first see that? On Netflix. So my friend Chris actually showed me the movie. And I've seen it once or twice. Once by myself. And once with him. That all the people that are left in the world are on this train that's racing through the snow forever, the snowstorm forever, and, and it goes from back to front. Yeah, from and, from uh, first class to no class, right? Whatever. I mean, it's it's, it's it, and it's all run by this woman, this uh, Tilda Swinton, this very Nazi esque woman that runs the runs the train. Is it the actor's name? That's her name. Her okay. real name is Tilda Swinton. She's a tough. The glass is tough, broad, that controls the train. She reminds me of a character out of The Hunger Games. If you've well, seen you, you've Games. seen her in, in so many films. But she, she changes her appearance. She's very clever, I don't, I don't clever actor. She's very clever. The name doesn't ring a bell, but I'm sure I've yeah, seen her face you've somewhere. Seen her in everything in life. But the interesting thing about, about this is this director, I mean, I never knew it was done by this Korean guy. Um, Bong... Bong, bong, bong John Ho. Bong, bong, bong so, Water so, Jun Ho. So here I drag you off to see Parasite. And of course, you didn't know it was done by the same guy. I did not. And here we're watching a Korean film in Korean. And so what do you think of Parasite? It's, it's quite a trip. It's gonna, I think it'll be nominated for a couple of Oscars this year. There, there, there were a fair amount of points in that movie where I sat back and said, holy shit, I need to take a deep breath. But the first hour is a very simple comedy. Well, it's very deceiving because it's a it's a long movie, but it's intriguing the whole way through. Yeah. So the first half of the movie is is very weird undertones of creepiness, but still normal. Did you find a? I just found these a family of con artists that are conning their way into this upper class society. Well, when I was watching the first hour, there were shots and moments of the first part that kind of alluded to what the movie was going to become, but it was so faint that you really didn't get a grasp. Just some of the way that they would, some of the music, some of the tones. Well, the music sets you up, but otherwise, I didn't. I didn't have a clue where it was going. I figured that it was going to get weird, but I didn't know where the weirdness was going to go. Because and how, at, and how far it was well, going. because at first I was like, "Is this going to be a movie about social classes?" Which it did which end it up being which, a movie about social classes. Which it is, but it's also a horror because because the point of the movie that changes it is when they without giving too much away. <laughs> let's just say someone gets kicked down the stairs, and when that was when the movie changed. That sets the tone to change, absolutely to just to went the, to the next genre. Yeah, nice to evil really quickly and I will want I want to watch it again 
to analyze it in a different light that is not yeah. as yeah it's sho- it was shocking it, it really it was start, it starts out like such a simple little alfred hitchcock film that just keeps developing and then it starts turning into this this horror epic thing my god like john carpenter and lots, a lot of different things beautifully shot and it is all about social and it was well built society. too because one thing that i noticed about the film that sometimes films don't do this well but every little detail of the movie built out and played out part of the story so mm-hmm. the part in the beginning of the movie where he says oh do you remember when you were a boy scout you would think that that's just a small part yeah, of the nothing, conversation no, nothing's a throwaway nothing is a throwaway yeah. everything does come back exactly. in the end exactly. and we won't give it away for you but exactly that small amount of details is what makes the movie regardless of how long it is because sometimes you tend to get lost in how long the movie is but this movie for how long it is still built so you the movie really well by the length i didn't even notice the length of it no i wasn't bothered by the length only by the size the fact that i had to pee once (laughs) (laughs) i always wish i could pause movies but i can't but there is a, a website or an app when you leave a movie and what you've missed, you know that? There's a no, there is. About is really? peeing, about going to pee. Honest to God. What like does first, it tell first, you? It first came out with Avatar. Remember, Avatar is a long movie. Yeah. And it told you when, what time to go pee and what you're going to miss on screen when you come back. And was Don't, what what's the best part of the movie to list? Well, exactly. It's real. Now, that you'll have to you'll have to dig that up when you go see The Irish with the New Scorsese with three and a half hours. You can definitely figure out when you're going to go pee on that one. I don't know if I'm going to... Why are we talking are about we, Are we going to go see we, that? Why are we talking about peeing? Are here? we going to go see that in theaters, or am I going to wait? How could I sit and watch a movie that long with you with your attention span? Well, as long as I get to pee first, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Feed me and let me go to the bathroom. I'll be good for three hours. So speaking of foreign films, I just came from a festival in Mexico and met a couple directors of all, but... One came up, a director that I, I knew from Chicago for years and years ago, but I had never seen his movie. It's the 20th anniversary of Selena, who I know nothing about Selena, and of course you do, since you're probably right. Mexican or something <laughs> like that, right? Mexican-American. Uh-huh. So tell me, who is this Selena? I had to go see the film, and I, I was blown away by this young actress who was probably Jennifer Lopez when she was 19 or 20 years old. So Jennifer Lopez did play her in the movie. Yeah. But I would consider Selena as the Madonna of Mexican culture. Because she's saying, I don't even remember exactly what the name of the music genre that she sings, but it's, it was all in Spanish. And she was such a, probably one of the first big Latin American Tex-Mex eccentric because it is kind of Tex-Mex centric music yeah and she kind of is in the same realm as Tupac and Biggie if you know anything about them in terms of the way that they died in their because she died and was if you've seen the movie or you know her life she got shot in the face she was murdered by her best friend she no it wasn't her best friend it was her friend her trusted her trusted employee yeah her trusted friend that was running her fan club, and that and her st- and, and she trusts her so much. She's running all of her fashion outlets. Was she? Was she yeah, really? Okay. Yeah. See, that's probably something I missed. The movies I've not seen the movie in five or six years, but but what's cool about the movie, since I know nothing about this young lady, uh, is the family. And but even before she becomes a singer, you have this father, this you know the actor that, yeah. that you love so much. What's his name? Edward James Olmos. Correct. So you have his father in his early life 
and his brothers doing a musical act, trying to be to get into nightclubs and stuff. But what I never knew is how hated the Mexicans were. They couldn't even play. It was like an African American situation. They couldn't play clubs because they're Mexican. Mm-hmm. They were thrown. I had no idea that this was even happening. In the same they, way, the black was happening. Black white deal was happening. They don't think. They didn't think that. Um, well, first of all, she had the issue of being a girl. So this yeah. is even before she becomes this. It's the father who was a singer. Do you know the father and the brothers? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah. He was the musical. His this, he, he couldn't make it. The movie reminds me very much so of Beyonce, and I don't know if you know anything about Beyonce. Beyonce and her is the same issue. It's not the same issue, but the same concept with her whole family as it's kind of the same Michael Jackson thing, where the whole family is involved in the business, okay. and the parents are kind of a failed artists but great managers and great and, exploitators and that's what happens here except right. she's forcing her father to become this she he hates her even doing and that's it. that's in the movie we don't know about how it is in real life because i assume it's because gregory was allowed to make this story which is very important for anyone to be given that story i assume he kept true to uh, real the real yeah. facts i don't i don't know that but i was blown away by the whole thing how old was um, jennifer lopez my god Anyway, probably under twenty-five. Incredible, incredible. I, I think Jennifer Lopez did a great job in the movie. I think that was one of the movies that solidified her in terms of her status. But mm-hmm. back to what I was saying in terms of the Tupac and the Biggie situation. Selena died, or was murdered at a point in her career that solidified her as a legend, because okay. she had so many songs and it was at the height of her career yeah. that when she died, she immediately went into this legendary status. Because at mm-hmm. the same time. Her siblings are not as famous, but maybe three fourths as famous. Yeah, the ones. Abi Quintanilla. The one sisters. And they continued on touring and making music and still being fairly popular, but Mm -hmm. never to the extent that the sister was and what she accomplished. Well, what's clever in 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 watching the development of her in the film is. She's just a conservative little girl that's got great ideas, and the father will not permit it. And suddenly, one day, she starts taking her clothes up on stage because no one's listening to her, and they start noticing her. And she says, but Daddy, Madonna does it. You see other things that she's basing herself on, and she names the other people. So that era, whatever time all this was, she does She does mention all of that, too. Yeah, because she, she, she does very much so embody the Mexican... Ver, the Mexican version of Madonna or mm-hmm. the pop star life. She kind of was the first in America that blew up. So then we start talking about Mexican movies, and I've seen I've seen my share of them. But you you made me watch something which I've never heard of called America, American Me, American Me, which also has the same actor and he's directing it as well. well yeah, so Edward James almost acts and directs the movie in a prison film, which is very similar to a lot of TV prison things I've seen in my life. But this is much stronger, and of course, it's all Latino. I never knew if. I, first of all, didn't know that he was the director of the movie until a few days ago because I didn't really care mm-hmm. about the director. I kind of was more enthralled with the movie and the story because yeah. it's what I grew up on. It's a subgenre of movies that were created in the late 80s and early 90s about the Mexican-American Chicano experience. And they're very West Coast-centric. Yes. And I grew up watching them. And to me... It's very interesting how they affected my perception of what I thought being Mexican in California was. Because it's it's kind of an allegory in terms of the fact that they're over 
played for the movie, but there are people that actually exist this way. So, for example, when I was in... Well, of course, they're, everybody's real in this film. Every, they're, well, every, they're all real. Every layer, layer of it's real. But for me, being a Mexican in Chicago, that idea of being overly... Because it's also an overly dramatic way of expressing yourself. Like, A, Holmes, like, very West Coast draw. And for me, it's very... It's, a, it's almost a caricature of what it's like to be Mexican because when I was in college, I, vi- I started visiting L.A. and mm. I started hanging out in East L.A., which is where a lot which of these movies are filmed. And it's funny seeing the characters that are embodied on film and on screen that I thought were a certain level of caricature actually being real-life human beings that I've come in, across and have had conversations with and... Try not to laugh at them, but at the same time, having genuine conversations and where they tell me about their life and seeing that these people actually do exist and they're not just caricatures that I see in movies. Well, the the cool thing about this film is it, it's not just the gangs. It's that this man can run something called a Mexican mafia mm-hmm. from prison, out of prison, back in prison against the Italian mafia and the black mafia in, in East, LA, East L.A., right? East yeah. L.A. And... Um, it's 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 remarkable. It could use some editing, but it's a pretty strong film, which I, I think I would highly recommend people to see. And uh, I would recommend them to see it as well. Film. Anyway, all this comes up because of meeting Gregory Nava again here in, in Mexico, and we have an interview with with him. We do have an interview with him, which you will listen to in a little bit. I will play. Yeah, listen to it because he he says some great stuff. So it's a we recorded it on the spot over at this festival in, in Mexico. Yeah, it's a, recording's not that great, but what he has to say is very important and very moving, I think. And he's hot today. His number number one film, if you look up your list, is his El Norte. See, I haven't seen that one, but I was looking one. up the top ten Chicano movies that existed, and the El Norte was the highest yeah. rated one. Then he goes on. To, after Norte, he goes on to the big, his giant, like Godfather piece, uh, La Familia, the TV piece. It goes on for many episodes. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes, you the one with Edward James Elmos? Yeah, yeah. That is actually really funny. This we, is Gregory's film, too. That I had to watch in Spanish class in high school. My teacher, shout out to Mrs. Reese, she was amazing, wrote my recommendations for college. She made us watch those films. Um, she didn't make us watch them, but on Fridays she'd put them on sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I never really understood them, but I did like them because it was Edward James Olmos. And now that's funny that you bring them up because... Gregory well, was always honored to be chosen to do the history of his people. Is he Mexican? He is a Mexican-American, yeah. Mm. Anyway. I never would have thought with the name Gregory why don't, we cut, why don't we cut to his interview? Well, listen to his interview right now. We'll be back in a little bit. And you know, I think all filmmakers have their own journey about how they first get their movies shown. Uh, And back in those days, it was very, very difficult for young filmmakers coming out of film school with a film. Uh, There was no independent film movement. Uh, Hollywood was a very closed shop. Film festivals, they showed Hollywood movies, they showed foreign films by Amar Bergman and uh, Federico Fellini, and there was not a lot of room for independent filmmakers. There was no independent film movement. So for my thesis film at UCLA, I made a feature-length 16-millimeter movie about wandering scholars in the Middle Ages that I shot in Spain called The Confessions of Amans. 
And uh, we actually got an independent filmmaker grant from the AFI. And I thought, oh wow, I got an independent filmmaker grant from the AFI. I finished this movie. I show it at UCLA. Everybody loves this movie. And I think this is it. Ah, this is my calling card. I'm going to have a career. So I go to my teachers at UCLA and I say, I've got this movie. What do I do with this movie? And they go, well, we don't know. Whatever. And I go, that's not a lot of help. So I go to the AFI and I talk to Jan Haig, who's head of the AFI. And I say, I've got this film, you know, you guys gave me money to finish it. Uh, everybody loves this movie. So where can I show it? Can you help me show it to some people? You're the American Film Institute. And Jan Haig goes, um, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do to help you. Nothing. So here I am alone with this movie under my arm and no place to go with this movie. And how old are you? Mm, you know, I'm in my 20s. So, uh, 26, I guess. So, I go, I'm trying to be resourceful, so I, I, I do some research. We didn't have internet in those days, so I go to the library. So I try, get a list of all the film festivals. I'm thinking, maybe a film festival will show my film. So I get a list of all these film festivals, and I write to them, and uh, send them the movie. So I'm sending the movie to all these film festivals, and getting rejected, rejection letters from everyone. Nobody's interested in showing a 16 millimeter feature length UCLA student film. So I go, okay, no, 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 no. But when I get the movie back, I can tell by the way the reels are taped up that nobody has even looked at the movie, right? So finally, I've got one film festival left, Chicago International Film Festival. I almost didn't send it because I thought this is useless. It's the last, but, the last one on the list. This, this, well, you know. So good. No, I mean, it was, we were just sending them out. It was because it was in November and I had started, yeah, it was in November in those days, as you recall. So it was at the end of the list because it was the end of the year, <laughs> right? Not because it was low on my priority of festivals I'd like to show it. It's that I started in January, you know? Okay, so I started in January, sending it to festivals in January, in February, in March, in April, in May, in June, July, in August, in September, October. Finally, we're down to November. So it's, we're at the end of the list. So I sent this movie to the Chicago International Film Festival. And uh, I get a letter back from Michael Kutza. And the letter is, we'll show your film. And he actually, looked at it, which is, and I know from all the rejections I got that nobody even considered it worthy to look at. So immediately I knew that we were talking about somebody very, very special who would take the time to look at a young filmmaker's work and, and give a young filmmaker a chance. And for this I'm eternally grateful to Michael Kutza. And I cannot say enough about how important he is, how wonderful the festival he started and founded is and, and was to me at that time. Well, yes, so now I'm going to tell the story. So I'm excited because I've got this film in the festival. So I fly to Chicago, never been to Chicago before, California boy. It was November uh, and it was cold and I, I'd never experienced any cold like that before in my life. So, you know, I get picked up at O'Hare Airport, and you get picked up by these nice, friendly Chicago, you know, film festival people. You know, they're all very well trained by Michael Kutza, and they're very friendly. And they pick me up, and we're excited, Mr. Nava, that you've come with your movie. And, um, you know, uh, we're driving into Chicago. 
So we're in the van and we're driving in Chicago. And they say, now we're all very excited to show it, but you should know that nobody, none of the critics are gonna see it, the press. You know, the variety is there and you know, what have you. Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune and all these people, they're not gonna see your film because they're not interested in seeing a 16 millimeter student feature film about a wandering scholar, right? And, and, I'm, and I'm like, well, okay, so the critics don't wanna see it. I was hoping you'd get some reviews, right? I thought, well, maybe the people in Chicago will like it. Oh, the people in Chicago, they're a great audience. They'll show and they'll come and see the movie. And then we're driving in and then finally one of the people says, except one critic may come to see your movie because he does go out of his way to, to see obscure things. And I said, really, who's that? And they said, his name is Roger Ebert and he's the critic for the Sun-Times, which is the second paper in Chicago. He didn't have the TV show at the time you know, the Siskel and Ebert show. He was just a local guy at the time. And they said, it's the second paper. I'd never heard of the Sun-Times. I'd heard of the Chicago Tribune, but I'd never heard of the Sun-Times. He said, but he's very popular. People really, really like him. And he does little reviews on the, on the evening news. And people like Roger. So just as we're saying that, a, a billboard comes by with Roger Ebert, you know, and uh, announcing that he does this, this show. So they say, Roger may see it. So you might get one critic, but that's it. So I said, okay, great. So the festival goes on and I meet Michael and he's marvelous and we go to these various film festival events and um, they have a press screening for the movie and nobody comes and Roger Ebert doesn't come. So I figure we're not gonna, we're not gonna have any review at all. Uh, and finally the moment comes for the big show. Now when the movie shows, it showed at the Biograph Theater, which at that time was still a movie theater in, uh, in Chicago. And I, being an earnest young filmmaker, I go early to the theater. I want to check it out, make sure everything's good. So I go into the theater early, I'm with the theater manager, the theater's empty, and I notice something very odd about the theater. There's a seat in the theater that's painted silver. And I go, well, why is that seat painted silver? And the manager says, oh, that's where John Dillinger was sitting on the night that he was shot down in the streets of Chicago. <laughs> so the biograph is the theater where the lady in red turned John Dillinger in, you know? So I'm going like, I'm not sitting in that seat, right? So, <laughs> so you know, we had a pretty good crowd. It was almost full of the theater. So I thought, wow, the people in Chicago, they're very cool, this is really good. And uh, I introduced the movie and then it, it shows. So now I'm in the lobby pacing, I'm very nervous and all this, you know. Check out, make sure the screening's going well and that's well projected and all of this. So after the movie ends, people are streaming out and I, I walk in and the people are coming out of the theater and this guy, this fat guy with glasses comes rushing up the aisle and he puts his hand out, approaches me and he puts his hand out and he goes, hello, my name is Roger Ebert and I loved your movie. So he actually came to see the movie, not at a press screening, but with an audience. We shook hands, and the next day, he wrote this glowing review of the Confessions of Amans that appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times. And then, the critics from Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and everybody, then they all wanted to see the movie, and so then they saw it, and then I got these wonderful reviews from Variety, I got this wonderful review from The, from the Hollywood Reporter, and then 
they have the awards because they gave awards for the Chicago Film Festival. And suddenly I'm staying with a friend uh, and I get a phone call in the morning and they go, you gotta come back to Chicago tonight, you know, because we were on the outskirts, because your film has won the best first feature prize at the Chicago International Film Festival, the Silver Hugo. I couldn't believe it. So we go back into town. They have this wonderful ceremony. And I still have this picture because the person, what? That's right. The person who gave you the award was Jean Moreau. Are you kidding me? Here I'm this young film fan. I have this picture. I treasure it. And there's Jean Moreau, big smiling Jean Moreau. She's giving me the word, and I'm sitting here like this, smiling. Jean Moreau's about four feet tall. You're sixteen. Yeah, I know. She was a little thing, and but uh, she filled the room with her. But she was Jean Moreau, and the smile on her face in this. She did because. She always, in her movie, she doesn't smile that much. But the glow on her face when she gave me this award, it was so lovely. You are tall. Yes, I am, very tall. So I took the award, I still have it, it's still one of my most treasured possessions, because it was really the beginning of my film career, which I owe all to Michael Kutza, cracking that tape, watching that movie, and then one thing led to another, and then Roger saw it, and all of these things. And after the ceremony, we go to O'Rourke's, with Roger and Jean Moreau and Michael Kutza and all of these luminaries in the film business. And here I am, this young guy, fresh out of UCLA, and I'm sitting and, you drink. and I'm having a drink, of course. I still do. I just had a tequila with Eugenio Caballero, my friend who's the great production designer of Pan's Labyrinth. And, um, you know, I'm sitting around and Jean Moreau and Roger Ebert, they're all being witty, and Michael Kutza, and I'm like, I can't believe it. Suddenly, I had been elevated into this world of, of uh, international filmmaking where I have been ever since. That's it, perfect. Well, I, I, not perfect. That is I wanted to say that I want to thank Michael Kutza. We can never repay. He's a very special man and very important. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. You can't pay now. Now I need money. <laughs> Don't tell me you want a percentage. <laughs> and we're back. So, Michael, what... Don't give me, let's do a tip, a film tip. That is so corny. What, why are you obsessed with, hey, let's end every show with a film tip? Because... What is a film tip to you? A film tip to me is, okay, we talked about this on episode three. Uh, a wet versus a dry reel. Yeah, I mean celluloid, but, but yeah, I was talking about when I was talking about cuckoo's nest. That's see, that's an a interesting white, filmmaker's a white, a white tip. Print. Well, who, who even has film anymore to even talk about? It? How can you relate to it? There is see, no. See, if film. I would have continued reading the King Vidor book, I would have had something to tell you guys. There is, there is nobody has celluloid. Nobody's making films anymore. That's a yeah. That's not a good tip. Give well, what, me a tip. Give me a tip that interests you. Okay, if Folk, you have you any. Okay, Folk what tip do you? Would you give someone? who is 20 years old and wants to do something acting related. Doesn't I, I, art I, filmmaking. I can only talk about filmmaking. And you know what my, my recommendation is hands-on. I don't want to put down film schools, but you don't need them. You need to be hands-on. If you can find a way to go work at a film studio, work with a filmmaker, work with people, and get your hands dirty and start making movies. So your recommendation is save your money for co from college. $27,000 a year at a film course. And spend maybe $2,000 on a camera? 
or hands on. find a way to work with a filmmaker that's actively doing something. That's what I did. Well, that's that's how I learned how to edit. That's things. easier said than done. I don't know. You're, many, your age, you can find people. Doesn't if sit, you put, hold on. Doesn't Set Space have a DePaul setup where you could actually learn filmmaking with the pros over at the studio? Yes, twenty-seven thousand dollars a year, Michael. Oh, you have to pay. You, you got to pay to get. If you that? go to DePaul, you can use it for free. But if you don't go to DePaul, you get shafted. I like the idea. I I took tours. I had classes at Cinespace. I liked it. I wish I would have done. I didn't more. know you had to pay for the film crews to do that. That's new to me. Well, if you go to the school, you get it for free. If you don't, I don't think you're even allowed to use it. So our tip today is find a way to sneak into the studio, <laughs> not pay the twenty seven thousand. Find someone doing film stuff. Ask them for help. That is our tip. Or, okay. or volunteer yourself. Okay. That's our tip. Email us at nose to nose podcast at gmail.com. Right. And subscribe.